Good uh, to be back with you. Um, if you've got your Bible this morning, you can open it up to Exodus. Uh, it's the second book in the Bible, and I know that you've been in Jonah for a little while, so you've been in the Old Testament. We're jumping way back to the beginning, and some of you I know have probably grown up in a context where um, when I say Exodus, uh, you immediately, there's imagery that comes up, there's um, thoughts, there's pictures, um, there's Charlton Heston maybe, I don't know. Um, all these things kind of come to mind. Others of you, you I, I may say Exodus, and you start to kind of scratch your head and try to piece together, now where is that again? And if that's you, don't be embarrassed of that. I, my, my wife and I are reading with our children through a children's uh, story Bible, and, and I think every time we read it with them, we're kind of like, oh, like, I forgot about that, or that makes a little bit uh, more sense now, and I see how that pieces together. And so, as we kind of go into Exodus, I want to kind of warm us up a little bit um, by, by thinking about this scenario. Think about, and this probably has happened um, to all of us at some point in our life, in our childhood. You found yourself at the grocery store, possibly with your mom or your dad, and they were going to, you know, the produce section maybe, and you knew that that was going to be boring, and the cereal aisle caught your eye, and so you sort of diverted your path to the cereal aisle or to the candy, whatever it might be. And you realize all of a sudden after you're enmeshed with all these choices that your mom or your dad is not there. Or maybe you were, this happened a lot in my case, you were in the department store and you're hiding under those racks, you know. And uh, you come out and you look around and they're, and they're gone. Or, you know, a really bad day would be the amusement park when you get separated. And that's really scary. But there's a sense when you're, when you're a child and you look up. And that parent is, is gone. That, that panic sets in. And it, there, there's no rational thinking that's going through that child's mind other than, I'm never going to see them again, right? Um, I am doomed. And, and I, I use that scenario to warm us up for this coming into the beginning of, of Exodus because... Really what had been happening with, with God's people is if you remember all the way back, God takes this man, Abraham, and he takes him outside and he, he points up to the stars and he says, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And he begins to build his people and he treats them like his child. All the way up to the end of Genesis. And you remember um, that even through the story of Joseph, um, that Joseph enters into the, to the, the king's house and becomes a, a ruler in Egypt. At the beginning of, of Exodus, what we find is that there is a new pharaoh, there is a new king that has arisen who doesn't remember Joseph, who doesn't know him. And what happens is, is God's people begin to grow and to multiply to such an extent that this pharaoh is threatened by them and they are forced into bondage and they are forced into slavery. The people of God look up and they say, where is he? What's happened? Where's my father? That's where we are in this book. If you'll turn your attention to God's word, Exodus chapter 1, we're going to start in uh, verse 15 and go through 2.10. 
That's sort of a lengthy passage. We're not going to look this morning in, in de- at all the details that are here, so don't worry. Um, we're going to kind of take the big picture of this and apply it, um, hopefully, to us. This is God's word. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and do not, did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with, well with the midwives. And the people, people multiplied and they grew very strong. And because of the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife as his wife, a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and she bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed him among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done with him. And now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman. And she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his, Moses' sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? She's very clever. And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the girl went. She called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older... She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses because he said, I drew him out of water. Amen. This is, this is not simply the stories of men. This is not the opinion of men. It's the very word of God. And so let's go to God now, and let's ask that he would bless us to us. Heavenly Father, we, are called, we were called into worship this morning by being reminded that, that your ways are not our ways. And Father, when we, when we look at the history of your people, when we look at the, the, the overarching story of, of your covenant of grace with your people, Father, I pray that it would, it would really crumble us to humility. Because Father, the truth is we, we could never have guessed what was going to happen in this instant. We can never... Um, plan what your plans are, Father. And so, Father, I pray that in, in, instead our response to you would be one of bowing down, 
of one, of, even as we've said, of trusting the things that you have promised to us. And Father, today, for those of us who come and we're in the midst of what feels like slavery and what feels like bondage to any number of things, Father, I pray that what we would see is that you are a God who loves to deliver. You are a God who wants to set us free. Father, help us to see that this morning. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Um, probably to one degree or another, some of, most of you in this room are probably familiar with C.S. Lewis's um, works, The Chronicles of Narnia. One of those um, books, these children's books that tell the story of this, this magical land of Narnia. In one of the books, Prince Caspian, basically what we find is that this land um, has fallen really into, into disrepair. Um, that the people who, who live there are under now the ruler, uh, this king who is not the rightful king. He has basically stolen the throne. And there's just a, really a, a depression that has fallen over the land because this God figure, this, this king, the true king Aslan, has not really shown his face in a long time. It's been so long that really the people have kind of almost forgotten. And there's this yearning that begins. There's this yearning, there's this longing for, for all of this to be made new again, for all of this to be made right again. And there's the one little girl, Lucy, who continues to, to believe, who continues to believe that, that, that Aslan, he, could, he, still, he still loves us, he still cares, he, he still can, he's still going to come back. And she believes this despite the fact that there's really no tangible reason for her to believe it. The good stories are, are good and they draw us in because good stories usually um, connect with some of the longings and some of the yearnings that we have. And as I, as I read that book and as some of you maybe watched the movie, that there is a yearning that, that we can relate to. And what I mean by that is it's not unfamiliar with any of your day-to-day experiences that when you look around this world, what you immediately are aware of, whether it's in your neighborhood, whether it's in this city, whether it's further away in this country or around the world, that what you, what you know is that this world is full of brokenness. And, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, that there is no, there's probably been no other time that you could literally be aware simultaneously of, of all of the things that are going on in this world sort of at an instant, that you can, you know, you're sitting in the carpool line and you can pull out your phone. And you can be aware of tragedies that are happening on the other side of the world. And there's a sense in which that, that affects us, right? I don't think we're, we're usually aware of the way in which that weighs on us. The way in which, if you're paying attention at all, it starts to make you, um, inside, it, it, it creates a yearning, it creates a longing, it may create in you questions where you want to say, where are you, Lord? What is going on? Or you just bring it down really to our own level. You bring it down to um, just our own existence and the, and the suffering that we experience. I mean, we are people who are incredibly 
privileged in so many ways. And yet what we know is that we're, because we're privileged, it doesn't mean we're immune to trial. It doesn't mean that we're immune to suffering. That tragedy can still strike us just as easily. That death can still come. That abuse can happen. That betrayal can occur to us as well. And none of us are immune to walking down roads that are very dark in this life. And when we do, there, there's a sense that God has left. That one of our first reactions, I know at least in my, in my own heart, and, and maybe you're not there with me, but one of my first reactions is, what in the world is he doing? Why would this be happening? I want to look this morning at this passage and, and, and bring those thoughts to, to, to really to bear on what's playing out in this story that really becomes um, a paradigm for the rest of the story of the Bible. That it really becomes, um, it, it becomes a picture of the way that God works. And I want to look, first of all, today at the fact that we should not be surprised when our life is hard. We should not, we should not be surprised when our life is hard. What do we do when it seems like God is, isn't there? That's... It's an incredibly important question for us to answer because the, the truth is all of us are going to come to points in our life when we're going to feel that way. And this was an especially important question for the Israelites. I mean, here they are. They're the people of God. They're the ones who have been gathered by his own hand, and they find themselves in, in a place of slavery. I mean, can you imagine... Like psychologically, like what that would have done to these people, like how they must have felt. And we, we don't have categories for what was going on with these people. We don't have categories to understand that the fact that they are now in slavery, they are now under oppression, they are now in bondage. And these are the people who, in Genesis chapter 46, God had told to Jacob, He said, Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For I will make you a great nation there. And so here they are in Egypt, and they are becoming great, and they are multiplying. But what happens as a result of that is Pharaoh is threatened, and because he's threatened, he decides to enslave them. And we have to ask the question, how does that happen? How can this happen? This is the very place that God himself had led them. This is the place that God had brought them into Egypt. And now this happens. Why? How how could God allow his people? How could this happen to God's people? What What about all the promises that were made to Abraham? And you want to know what the what the answer to that question is, the biblical answer to that question is, is one that that makes us uncomfortable, right? But it's also one that if we, don't, if we don't grasp it, if we don't own it, if we don't subject ourselves to it, then, then we'll really never be at peace without it. Because the biblical answer to that question is how could this happen? How could God's people end up in slavery? Is that God put them there. God put them there. That this is a part of their story. That this is a part of the way that he decided to work his plan through them. And we're not always, in, in our lives, we're not always told 
why that happens. You know, we're not, we're not given this detailed explanation when, you know, tragedy strikes in our lives. It's not sort of like you get a telegram in the mail from God and he gets sort of, this is why this happened. That, that we don't always get the answer, but in this instance, in Romans chapter 9, we are told. And listen to what, listen to what Paul says as he quotes God. For this very purpose, I raised Pharaoh up to demonstrate my power in him, so that my name might be proclaimed throughout all of the earth. That God allowed, caused Pharaoh to rise to power. God caused Pharaoh to rise to power. That the kings of this, of this earth that the people in the highest places of authority in this, on this planet do his bidding. They belong to him. They are not outside of his control. That he allowed his people to enter into hardship so that through them he might demonstrate to all the earth that he is a God who can deliver from what have, would have been the strongest power in existence on that earth. What does that mean for, for us? Well, for one, it probably means, I know that it does in my, in my case at least, it probably means that our God is way too small. That on a day-in, day-out basis, the way that I operate in my life, it, it does not keep this perspective in mind. That my God is way too small. That this God is a God who expands and blows our categories. That the powers of this world are under his control. And what that means for us is that whatever we are are going through, as we're his people, just as these were his people, that whatever we're experiencing is not outside of his kind providence. You know, I mean, that's such a... Some of you have heard statements similar to that so many times that it just... It sort of just kind of goes right over or goes in one ear and out the other. Think about that. Take that that down and apply it to to right now. (laughs) Wherever that might be, that if you belong to him, that what you are experiencing is not outside of his kind providence. That it's not meaningless. That it's not purposeless even though it may not be at all sensible to you. It means that when Paul says, another one of those verses that we hear so many times that we just sort of pass over, that all things work together for good to those who love Jesus, that all things really do and will work together for good. And we may not know how, and we may not know when, and we may not be able to see it. It means that Paul set enchained in a prison cell, and it was enchained in a prison cell where he did his best ministry. It's, it's there that he wrote letters that we still read today and our souls are fed, are fed by. That doesn't make sense to us. We wouldn't have planned it that way. We wouldn't say, well, the, well, the, the first missionary, let's put him in chains in a prison. 
we have to find some sort of encouragement by the fact that God works that way, and He always has. It means that even though He may seem He's not there, He always is. He is working. He is always working. And He is always working at something necessarily that is beyond my comprehension and that is beyond your comprehension. So don't be surprised when your life is hard. We are inundated with comforts, right? They are all around us. We surround ourselves with with them. We long for them. And some comforts are not necessarily a bad thing, but what it makes us long for is a life that is not hard. And what we see in the people of God over and over and again, and the way that God works is He works through hardship, He works through suffering, He works through difficulty. Don't be surprised. When we're surprised is when we ask that question. He must not be here. What we find in the Bible is usually He's hardest at work when things look the most bleak. And so not only is the, the, the slavery shocking, not only should we not be surprised that our lives are hard, but we should instead, we should marvel at the way in which through the hardness, through the difficulty, He is a God who delivers. Slavery is shocking, but the way that God begins to deliver His people, I think in many ways is even more astounding. It's even more shocking. You know, oftentimes in the Bible when you kind of go, people ask God for deliverance, they ask God for help, And what happens is God typically answers that in a way that, oh, we probably wouldn't have guessed. You think of the prophet Habakkuk. And he's he's crying out to God. He's saying there is perverse injustice in Judah. Right? That there are bad things going on, God, and we need you to deliver us. And so God answers by saying, I am going to, this is in Habakkuk 1.5, I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe. And you think, Awesome. Cannot wait to see what this is. What God does is he raises up this impetuous, ruthless people called the Babylonians to come and to take the Israelites away. And the reason that he does that is because he loves them. That he answers that prayer in a way that is shocking, that is surprising, that is not the way that we would have planned. But he takes them away. He takes them into exile as a way to show them where their true hope really is found. And in our passage this morning, we get the same sort of shocking reminder of the way that God works. And and one of the first things that we see in this passage is that God works and he, He delivers through weak and powerless means. Don't don't miss the beginning of the deliverance of God's people from slavery. I mean, think about this passage. I mean, read it again with new eyes if you've read it a hundred times before. If you've never read it before, you, you should have been kind of, as we read it, going like, this is crazy. Like, this is insane. Because the God who controls every molecule, molecule in the universe, his people are in slavery. And the way that he's de- beginning to orchestrate the delivery of them is through two midwives. I think that's amazing. <laughs> I think that that is amazing. I, I, I think that we shouldn't skip over that. that. Isn't it interesting that the fact that these two women, Shipra and Pua, have their names forever recorded in God's Word, and yet we don't actually know 
um, which Pharaoh this is because his name is never mentioned. He's just called Pharaoh. Isn't it interesting that God chose Moses? This, this poor slave with a speech impediment as an instrument of liberation. Stop feeling insignificant. Don't you feel insignificant? <laughs> I mean, maybe you kind of go, no, I'm not sure what you're talking about. Well, look at the things that you long after. Stop thinking that, that you need a job of this category in order to matter more. Stop thinking that you need a position in this place or, or that that is more powerful in order to be important. Stop thinking that, that money is going to cure your problems. Two midwives and a stuttering slave are the way that God delivers his people. Quit trying to be God is what he's showing us and bow down to God instead. I mean, accept, maybe we, another way we say it is accept where God has put you. Accept where he has placed you and worship him. Salvation comes through weak and, and powerless means. It's where he demonstrates his strength is where he demonstrates his power. But salvation in this passage comes through events, obviously, that we would never predict. I mean, if you just followed the twists and turns of um, chapter 2, verses 1 and 10 of this passage as I read them, I mean, there's more twists and turns um, than some good suspense movies, right? I mean, a baby and a basket and a river, Pharaoh's daughter finds this child and pities it, but it's... He, he, the sister of, of the child is there and suggests a nurse for it and runs and gets the child's mother. Um, the child's mother gets paid by Pharaoh's daughter to raise her own child. And then that child is returned to, to Pharaoh's house, which was the most powerful place on earth. You know, why, why should that matter to us? Is this just a, a story? It matters because the truth is, you ultimately do not know what he will do, how he will do it, or when he will do it. But you do know that he is working to reveal his glory, to bring salvation, and that he loves to work through means and by means that we would never have guessed, and that might even be you. Don't be afraid of hardship, don't be afraid of suffering. Instead, marvel at his deliverance. Lastly, this morning, we know that, that that's not an easy thing to do, right? But we know that we can, we can trust God's method, lastly, because we know his mediator. We know the way in which he ultimately works because there's something more in this passage. If you, if you look at it, there's, there's something under the surface of this passage. And that we can't just end this morning by saying you should trust God even though you don't know what he's doing. And you, you can't simply leave this morning with the fact that, you know, we're all called to suffer. You know, have a nice day. I mean, all God's people have known that. And we can't, we can't even end by saying that God loves 
to use the outcast and the lowly to bring out his purposes. But we have to end by seeing what this passage really is pointing us to. Really what it's going to ultimately point God's people to. What it's preparing them for is the way in which he will deliver. I mean, you notice as I reread that story, sort of the, the things that are there. And if you go back and you read through the rest of Exodus, that, that this whole scene is incredibly familiar. That a king decrees that all the male infants should be killed. And yet this child is born who, who grows up to liberate the people. That he's rejected by his own people. He goes into the wilderness ultimately. He's anointed by the Spirit of God. And he comes back and returns to lead them out of bondage and to lead them out of slavery. That he's under the sentence of condemnation and death. And yet through that sentence of death, he becomes the liberator of his people. There's a scene in in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus, Peter, James, and John go up on a mountain, and Jesus is sort of, he's transfigured. His face begins to glow, and these two men show up on either side of him, Elijah and Moses. And Luke tells us that they discussed with Jesus the exodus that he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. That they discussed with Jesus the, the, the exodus, it's the same word, the departure, the exodus that he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. What does that mean and why does that matter to us today? Jesus came to deliver you from bondage and slavery. Jesus came to deliver you from bondage and slavery. And you kind of go, what are you talking about? I'm not in bondage and I'm not in slavery. The bondage and the slavery that you and I experience on a daily basis. The bondage and slavery of a heart that is prone to worship things because we think in those things we will find deliverance and yet we never do. That Jesus came to bring you home. That he came to restore you to what you were ultimately made for And you were ultimately made for Him. That you were made for glory. That you were made to live in light and not in darkness. That you were made to live unafraid and not paralyzed with anxiety. That you were made to find freedom in who you are in Christ and not what you have done, no matter how wonderful it is, not what you have produced, not what you have owned, not how great your children are or not are, not any of those things, that you were, you were made to find wholeness in Him. And Paul says it is for, for freedom that Christ has set you free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do you know that Jesus has come to deliver you from bondage? That he placed his people under the slavery of the most powerful Pharaoh and he delivered them out of it and he's saying he he brings his son into this world born in a stable, grown up as a carpenter, who marches towards Jerusalem and dies at the hands of the state 
and rises again. And he's saying, through that, through the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, you've been delivered. You don't have to fear hard circumstances anymore. You don't have to fear difficulty in your life anymore. That ultimately, your place is secure. If we, if we look toward our circumstances for deliverance, we're always going to be in bondage, aren't we? I mean, it's true, and we know that. If we look towards our circumstances to find deliverance, then we will never find peace. That we're all, they're never going to be quite what we want them to be. They're never going to bring what we're looking for. They always bring more bondage. But if we find our deliverance in the death and resurrection of Jesus, then what we begin to find is that we can be free. That we are offered freedom even in the midst of the most hellish trials. Even in, even in the midst of things that we would never comprehend. That there's a freedom that is offered us in the gospel that cannot be taken away. For those of us this morning who say, I'm, I'm experiencing what really feels like slavery, what feels like bondage, what feels like just neurotic thoughts, what feels like sin that cannot be overcome. You need to know that he has not left you. And that Jesus says, in his, he says in Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens it, I love this picture. I will come in and I will dine with him and he with me. And this morning, in just a couple minutes, that's exactly what we get to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, confess, I confess that the moment difficulty arises, um, we are prone to think that it can't lead anywhere good, couldn't possibly be from your hand. And Father, we thank you this morning that you're a God who works in ways that we would never imagine. And Father, we pray that you would, you would continue to work on us, to work through us, Father. And would you firmly plant and place our faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name we pray. Amen.